I'm going to read the scripture for this morning. The Lord said to Moses, Why are you crying out to me? Tell the Israelites to break camp. As for you, lift up your staff, stretch, stretch out your hand over the sea, and divide it so that the Israelites can go through the sea on dry ground. As for me, I am going to harden the hearts of the Egyptians so that they will go in after them. And I will receive glory by means of Pharaoh, all his army, and his chariots and horsemen. The Egyptians will know that I am the Lord when I receive glory through Pharaoh, his chariots, and his horsemen. Then the angel of God, who was going in front of the Israelite forces, moved and went behind them. The pillar of cloud moved from in front of them and stood behind them. It came between the Egyptians and the Israelite forces. There was a cloud and darkness. It lit up the night, and neither group came near the other all night long. Then Moses stretched out his hand over the sea. The Lord drove back the sea with a powerful east wind all that night and turned the sea into dry land. So the waters were divided, and the Israelites went through the sea on dry ground, with the waters like a wall to them on their right and left. The Egyptians set out in pursuit, all Pharaoh's horses, his chariots, and his horsemen, and went into the sea after them. During the morning watch, the Lord looked down at the Egyptian forces from the pillar of fire and cloud and threw the Egyptian forces into confusion. He caused their chariot wheels to swerve and made them drive with difficulty. Let's get away from Israel, the Egyptians said, because the Lord is fighting for them against Egypt. Then the Lord said to Moses, stretch out your hand over the sea so that the water may come back on the Egyptians, on their chariots and horsemen. So Moses stretched out his hand over the sea, and at daybreak the sea returned to its normal depth. While the Egyptians were trying to escape from it, the Lord threw them into the sea. The water came back and covered the chariots and horsemen, plus the entire army of Pharaoh that had gone in after them in the sea. Not even one of them survived. But the Israelites had walked through the sea on dry ground, with the waters like a wall to them on their right and to their left. That day the Lord saved Israel from the power of the Egyptians, and Israel saw the Egyptians dead on the seashore. When Israel saw the great power that the Lord used against the Egyptians, the people feared the Lord and believed in him and in his servant Moses. May God bless the reading of this word. All right, so first things first. Y'all probably wondering why we're looking at this scripture on Easter, right? Y'all like, that ain't the story that I was expecting today. Yeah? Yeah? So the question is this, why would I, why would I preach this passage on Easter Sunday? Why would I preach that? Well, one, we're in the series looking at the life of Moses and how it points us to Christ. Um, but the reason I would preach from any Old Testament text on a day like today is because of one of the promises the resurrected Jesus made. You know, after he rose from the dead, there's this scene where he's walking down this road called Emmaus, and he's talking to two disciples who, for some reason, don't quite recognize who he is, and they're all distressed. They're like, man, you don't know what happened to Jesus. You don't know that he was suffering. You don't know that he died. You don't know all this stuff. And one of the things it says in Luke 24, 44, it says, these are my words that I spoke to you while I was still with you that everything written about me and the law of Moses, the prophets, and the Psalms must be fulfilled. 
In other words, we can see different aspects of what Christ has accomplished for us through the Old Testament Scripture. Like when you're looking at the Old Testament, it's almost like you're looking at different camera angles, different, different ways of seeing the triumph of Christ. And as we look at this Scripture today, it tells us that God draws near to save and protect His people while at the same time drawing near to destroy his enemies. Let's pray. Father, I pray that you would speak through your word. I claim the promise of Christ Jesus that all of the scriptures point to him. Lord, would you renew our sense of wonder and delight in the finished work of the cross? Would we see the many ways that our Savior has protected and saved us, that he has got glory and saved his people at the exact same time? Would you be exalted? In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. So we get in that first part that God prepares his people for his salvation. Listen, when he's talking to Moses in verse 16, he says, As for you, lift up the staff, stretch out your hand over the sea, and divide it so the Israelites can go through the sea on dry ground. As for me, I'm going, hard, going to harden the hearts of the Egyptians so that they will go in after them. And I will receive glory by the means of Pharaoh, all his army, his chariots, and horsemen. The Egyptians will know that I am God when I receive glory through Pharaoh, his chariots, and his horsemen. Now, what's interesting is God lays out what he's going to do, and then he does it. Now, now here's the deal. God displays his sovereign power through this. Now, if you're on a basketball court, right, and somebody says, I'm going to cross you up, and then I'm going to go to the right side, and I'm going to make a layup. And they told you what they're going to do before you did it. And if they still did it, you can see their skill, yeah? If somebody told you exactly how they're going to beat you, and they still beat you, you should think, oh, man, <laughs> this person has some skill. They have some power. Listen, listen, this is about his sovereign power. There is no one like our God who can tell us exactly what he is going to do and then accomplish it in the exact way that he said that he was going to do it. You know, when Jesus was on the cross, he said this statement. He said, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Now, there's a couple of ways you could hear that. You could hear him saying he feels forsaken, and I think that's legitimate. But you got to understand, at this point in time, the Psalms, they weren't numbered. You, you indicated the Psalm by the first sentence of the Psalm. So, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me is the beginning of Psalm 22. And if you read Psalm 22... It is this description, this prophecy of what happened to Jesus a thousand years before it happened. In Psalm twenty-two, fourteen, 14, it says, I am poured out like water, and all my bones are disjointed. My heart is like wax melting within me. My strength is dried up like baked clay. My tongue sticks to the roof of my mouth. You put me into the dust of death. For dogs have surrounded me. A gang of evildoers has closed in on me. They pierce my hands and my feet. I can count all my bones. People look and stare at me. They divided my garments among themselves. And they cast lots for my clothes. See, in this, in this psalm, we can see the prophecy of Christ being fulfilled. Was he not tired? Was he not beaten? 
Could you not see his, his dehydration when he said, I thirst? Was he not surrounded by his enemies? First, he's surrounded by the, the Sanhedrin, and then, then he is surrounded by, by the, the court with Pilate. And then while he's on the cross, he is surrounded by Roman guards. Do you not see how they pierced his hands and his feet? See, Christ is sovereign over his own suffering. And not only that, Jesus prophesies his own resurrection. In Mark 8, 31, he said, Then he began to teach them that it was necessary for the Son of Man to suffer many things and be rejected by the elders, chief priests, and scribes and be killed and rise after three days. This is Christ, the sovereign King of kings, the one with all power and all knowledge, telling you exactly what he's going to do before he does it, and then he does it. In John 10, it says, this is why my father loves me, because I lay my life down so that I may take it up again. No one takes it from me, but I lay it down on my own. I have the right to lay it down, and I have the right to take it up again. See, we see this example played over and over in Scripture where God explains and foreshadows and prophesies how he's going to deliver his people, and then he does it. Now, y'all, I think we're waiting for salvation too, right? Jesus says, I'm going to come back. I'm going to save my people. I'm going to bring justice and righteousness. I'm going to give you a new resurrected body. Listen, time and time and time again, he has told you how he's going to save you, and then he does it. So surely we can rely on his promises now, yeah? Yeah, yeah. So listen to this. This is interesting. Verse 19 is a really interesting thing that happens. See, God comes near simultaneously, listen, to save and to confound. Look at 19. Then the angel of the Lord, who was going in front of the Israelite forces, moved and went behind them. The pillar of cloud moved from in front of them and stood behind them. It came between the Egyptians and the Israelites' forces. There was cloud and darkness. It lit up the night. Neither group came near the other all night long. So what's going on is there's this chase happening. The Egyptians are chasing the people of God. And what happens, there's the angel of the Lord, which is in this appearance of a cloud. And he comes and he kind of puts, he's like a divider between his people and the people who are chasing his people. And what's interesting is at the same time, he's providing light for his people. He is putting darkness and confusion on those who are not. Now, now look, look now, let, let's talk for a minute. Who is this angel of the Lord? Later on in the text, it identifies the angel of the Lord with the Lord. Yeah? So, so the angel of the Lord is both God and distinct from God. Or as Apostle John says, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. See, this is an example of our pre-incarnate Christ, how he would come down. And listen, God's presence draws near to save, right? In the midst of darkness, God brings his life, his light and safety. Yet somehow at the same time, God's presence draws near to confound and punish. Now, here's the interesting thing. I want you to ask yourself this question. What is the difference between these two groups of people? There's the Israelites and the Egyptians. What is the difference now, one could say a lot of things, but the difference is not in nature. The difference is in posture. Human nature is the same wherever you go, right? We talked about this last week, that everybody is this, this complex mixture of sinner and sufferer, yeah? 
Every person you meet is like that. So their human nature was, their, was the same, but their posture was different. The, the, the Israelites, they're, they're in the posture of, save me. I need help. They're in this humble posture. The Egyptians were in an, an oppressive and a rebellious posture. Let me get what I want. Let me do what I want. See, in the gospel, we have God and Christ draw near to his people. Yeah, the word became flesh. And Christ shows light and grace to the humble. Christ shows grace to dirty fishermen. Yeah? He eats with sinners and prostitutes. He says, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. When he draws near in Christ, he blesses the humble. He comes close to the broken. Yet at the same time, when Christ comes near, he confounds the prideful. One time his disciples asked him, why do you tell parables? Why you be speaking so strangely, Jesus? And Matthew 13, 13, he says, this is why I speak to them in parables. Because looking, they do not see. And hearing, they do not understand. He knew those who would listen and those who wouldn't. And those who come to him just to hear a show, and those who come to him to try to trick him, he says, I'm actually going to confound you. The same Jesus that comes close to bless and save is the same Jesus that when he rolls up into the temple and he sees people trying to make money off of the temple, starts throwing stuff around. What's the difference between these groups of people? They're all sinners. They're all sufferers. The difference is the posture. That if we come to Christ with a humble posture, understanding our brokenness, he gives us light and salvation. If, he comes to, if we come to him with a prideful posture, thinking that we have all that we need, we will be confounded. Now, the interesting thing about this, this story in the book of Exodus is that God both saves and judges through the same miraculous act. In verse 2 and 1, it says, Then Moses stretched out his hand over the sea. The Lord drove back to sea with a powerful east wind all that night and turned the sea into dry land. So the waters were divided. And the Israelites went through the sea on, on the dry ground with the waters like a wall to them on the right and the left. So if you're God's people, it's looking like a good time, right? You're like, oh man, look at here. A path just opened. Let us go. <laughs> But at the same time, in this same act, he defeats his enemies, yeah? In verse 23, it says, The Egyptians set out in pursuit. All Pharaoh's horses, his chariots, and his horsemen, and went into the sea after them. During the morning watch, the Lord looked down at the Egyptian forces from the pillar of fire and cloud and threw the Egyptian forces into confusion. He caused their, their, their wheels to swerve and made them drive with difficulty. They said, oh man, the Lord's fighting for them. And then the Israelites got to the other side of the sea, and, and the Lord told Moses, stretch your hand out again. And what it says, it says, says, so Moses stretched out his hand over the sea, and at daybreak the sea returned to its normal depth. Get this, while the Egyptians were trying to escape from it, the Lord threw them into the sea. The water came back and covered the chariots and the horsemen plus the entire army of Pharaoh. Not one of them survived. So we see somehow in the same act, this parting of the Red Sea and the putting it back, that God saves his people and confounds and destroys his enemies. 
Beloved, what this points to is the cross of Christ and his resurrection. It was an act of simultaneous salvation and judgment. So let's get real. What, what pursues us? We're not running around here from Egyptians. We're not running around here from physical people. But what pursues us? Does not Satan pursue us? The scripture says that Satan tempts. Have you ever felt like you couldn't escape temptation? You've been there? You're like, I keep, I keep running into this thing. I'm trying to run. It's everywhere. The scriptures say that Satan accuses. Have you ever felt like you cannot escape accusation? You're feeling overwhelmed by your sinfulness, overwhelmed by your record of wrong that Satan keeps bringing up in your face. Does it not feel like he chases you at times? Does not sin pursue you? It deceives. You thought you would get what you want, but then you face consequences, yeah? Sin, it controls. Sometimes you do what you don't even want to do. Am I right? I don't, in Romans 7, this is the, the realest scripture that I know of. It says, for I do not do the good that I want to do, but I practice the evil that I do not want to do. Now, if I do what I do not want, I am no longer the one that does it, but it is the sin that lives in me. So Satan pursues us, sin pursues us, and beloved, death pursues us. Does it not? In Hebrews, it says, it says that we are all held in slavery all of our lives by the fear of death. It's the consequence of our sin. And ironically, it's the great unifier of mankind. Republican, Democrat, black, white, I don't care where you're from. Death is coming. And there's no escape. Yeah? One of the things about our, our culture is, is we try to avoid talking about it. It feels awkward, right? We feel awkward talking about the thing that's going to happen to everybody. <laughs> There's a story of this old saint where he would, uh, when he was at his desk, he had a skull on his desk, which is awkward. Yeah, that's awkward. And people would walk by him. They said, what are you, why you got that there? He said, I'm going to remember that I'm going to die. So we have these pursuers. Satan pursues us by tempting. Sin pursues us by controlling. Death pursues us, and we realize our, our mortality. And the reality is as Satan, sin, and death pursue us, Christ parts the way of escape on the cross. Listen, when, 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 the, when God was about to part the Red Sea, Moses, his prophet, lifted up a staff. But when we look at Christ, the one who parts the sea of our punishment, he is lifted up on a staff. And as he is lifted up on a staff, we find a way of escape. In the death of Christ, our pursuers thought they had won. You know, Satan rejoiced because his enemy was dead. Sin thought it added another list to those that it conquered. And death thought it swallowed up the author of life. Satan, sin, and death sought to follow us, but they were swallowed up in the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. And we get safe passage. We get to run to him for salvation. And Satan, sin, and death are drowned 
and the death and resurrection of Christ. You know, when the, when the Israelites got to the other side of the sea, the text says they looked back. I don't know how many of them were surprised or not. I'm sure they were running because they were afraid. Got these pursuers are hot on my heels. They got chariots. I don't got no horses. They're running. They have power. And yet they turn around and they see their enemies dead, defeated by the sovereign God. And so today is a day that we look back. If we look back at the cross and the resurrection, we see Satan has been defeated. Accusations lose their power. Yeah? One of my favorite uh, quotes is from Martin Luther, and he says, Sometimes Satan comes and accuses me of my sin. And I say, actually, you forgot some. Let me tell you some more, because here's the deal. I don't have to be ashamed of my sin anymore, because all of my sin have been put on Christ at the cross. So I don't have to be afraid of the accusations. We look back, and we can see that sin has lost its power. Listen, it it doesn't deceive us anymore because we know it's real in. The picture of Christ on the cross is the picture of what sin looks like. It doesn't control us anymore because Christ has broken his power. If we were to turn back and look back at the cross and the resurrection, we could see that death has lost its sting. We do not fear death because our Savior rose from the dead and he will raise us up on the last day. When we look back and we go, we're safe, we look back and we see our resurrected, victorious Savior. The one who has made a path of salvation for us and a wave of destruction for all that would seek to destroy us. Now what I love is at the end, they're looking back. They see this destruction. I bet they're like, whew, you know, we got out. In verse 31, it says, When the Israelites saw the great power that the Lord had used against the Egyptians, the people feared the Lord and believed in him and his servant Moses. Beloved, this day is a day we celebrate the resurrection. And in the resurrection is the evidence of God's power against our enemies, Satan, sin, and death. And so when we look back, we should believe in God and believe in his servant and son, Jesus Christ. Now in Exodus 14, it recounts this this great salvation that swallows up God's enemies. In Exodus 15, we get to see what they do. What did the Israelites do after their great salvation? Exodus 51, it says, Then Moses and the Israelites sang this song to the Lord. They said, I will sing to the Lord, for he is highly exalted. He has thrown the horse and his rider into the sea. If you jump down to verse 20, after they're singing the song for a long time, it says, Then the prophetess Miriam, Aaron's sister, took a tambourine in her hand, and all the women came out following her with tambourines and dancings. Miriam sang to them, Sing to the Lord, for he is highly exalted. He has thrown the horse and his rider in the sea. What's so interesting about this salvation is that there's actually nothing left for us to do but praise him. 
We don't have to lift any finger to accomplish our salvation. We don't have to lift a finger to fight our enemies. Christ accomplished the whole thing. That we get safe passage that Satan has no power over us. Sin's power is broken and death has no power over us. And we didn't do anything but receive. And so today is the day that, that we sing and we celebrate our great salvation. We praise our Savior who draw near to us when we were in the darkness and confused, lost in sin and hopelessness. He shines his light and he says, come here, you can find rest in me. We come to our Savior who says, I know that you might be afraid of death, but let me demonstrate to you what's going to happen. You may die, but if you believe in me, you will raise up like me. Listen, we praise our Savior because he is worthy of all of our praise. He has saved us fully and completely, and we can find rest. And so all that's left to do today, and really, beloved, all that's left to do for all eternity is praise him, is it not? Because he has accomplished our salvation. Let's pray. Father, we thank you so much for the display of your power. Lord Jesus, that you drew near to us. That you saw us fleeing our enemies, unable to escape. And through your cross and resurrection, you provided a way. And all of our enemies have been swallowed up in your victory. So Lord, let us offer up our lives as a sacrifice of praise. In Jesus' name, amen.